Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship. How are you guys? Good. So I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. The, um, the arm's feeling better, but I can't bend it past that point right there. So I'm not saying you can tackle me yet, but just so you know, I think it's healing up fairly quickly. In other news, I'm not a huge college basketball fan, but this is very fitting. It's down to Virginia versus Texas and it's on, baby. It is on. So um, we'll see which state comes out on top tomorrow night. So good luck to uh, you guys. Um, so we're starting a brand new series uh, today. And this, is, this series is really going to stretch me in a lot of ways uh, for a couple of reasons. I'll explain that in a minute. But over the next seven weeks, we're going to talk a lot about ancient heresy. Sound exciting? Yes. And we're also going to be tying this into, like, a superhero character. So there's a guy that wrote a book that Rebecca Cagle recommended to me, and I read it about a while back, and I thought we could turn this into a series. And so here we go. And uh, this is really going to be a series about how we're going to look at ancient heresies and how people back then fell victim to them, and then how people can fall victim to those things today. And we're going to portray each, each heresy with a certain superhero character. All right, and uh, this series is really going to stretch me. Number one, because I have not studied ancient heresy all that much. Surprise, surprise. And secondly, I've never been the biggest fan of superhero movies. I know. It's like why? Like y'all are like that's heresy. I know you guys. Which is why I have enlisted the help of Tyler, Rebecca, and Chris to help me do this series. So you're going to hear from other leaders as well. Um, but I thought I would take a stab and be the sacrificial lamb this morning for you. Now, it might seem strange to do a series on heresy, but I think it's really important because we can, um, I think you'll be surprised to see how previous cultures fell victim to these things and how we often do today as well. So every, every spring, I like to do a series with my outgoing seniors in mind, and this is kind of that series as well this year. And... Uh, and I say that to you because recently, in the last, what, month or two, I've actually conversed with a couple of former students of mine. One was from here in, in Belton, Texas. Another one was from Arlington, Texas. And we just caught up briefly, but I asked them how they are in their faith now. And, and these guys are in their late 20s, maybe even one's in his late 30s, actually. And, uh, and they both just said, I don't consider myself a believer anymore. And one of these guys, I, I feel like this thing's in the way one of the guys that I'm talking about, I spent countless hours sitting out by his pool discipling this guy. Like, we would go through books together and Bibles together, and he was part of a small group I was a part of, and, and I spent time with him just individually discipling him, and he's someone who says now, I don't believe really any of that anymore. And so whenever I think of former students I've had, on the one hand, it can be downright depressing but on the other hand, I get really encouraged because um, this, this year at Impact Camp, I think we have the most returning former students to help with leadership as ever before. It's, it's really crazy. I was getting a message from a former student like every week. Hey, Dave, this is so-and-so. Can I come back and be an Impact Camp leader? And we're like, okay, fine. And now we're like booked up with all these former, you guys are going to be like, these guys aren't mature. They can't lead us. But... We're going to try. We'll see how this goes. 
But I'm so encouraged when I see students that just want to, like, I know they're doing well, at least right now they are, and they want to jump back in. They want to help lead. They want to do the things that they did when they were in high school here because they love it that much. And I know they love Christ. But on the flip side, there's people that I've talked to that it's like they just, they don't even, um, they don't even, uh, they're not walking in their faith at the moment. And so, um, I think it's always important to talk to our seniors, especially as they kind of, before they graduate, this applies to everyone in the room, of course. Now, I have used the word uh, heresy in our opening here. So what is heresy exactly? I want to define it for you this way. Heresy is a bad idea or false teaching that undercuts the gospel. Now, I know that might not clear it up all that much for you. We're going to explain this as the series goes on. But in other words, we're going to see why for Jesus to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, he had to be both God and man, fully God and fully man. Most of the ancient heresies that we're going to get into had to do with the nature of Christ and who he was. And so each one's going to show you a facet of what many believe way back when, and they didn't just think these heresies up in a vacuum. They didn't just go, hey, let's, uh, let's think of some false ideas about Jesus and write them down and try to spread lies. That's not what happened. These were coming out of a real cultural context that they were having issues with and wrestling with, and they, and they had certain conclusions about who Christ was and who he wasn't. And so you'll see how all this ties into the culture back then, how it ties into the culture today, I think, as we go through the series. So today we're talking about Superman and docetism. Now, you have no idea what that second word is, but you know who Superman is, so we'll talk about him first. Now, um, when I was young, my, uh, this is so weird to say this now, but I think when I was uh, born into my family, my, my parents did not actually own a television. I know it's crazy. They were, we had some land, and they were the, my mom especially was the kind of person, she's like, I don't watch, want the kids watching TV. I want them outside playing and hurting themselves. So that's what she wanted us to do. So uh, for, from like age zero to five, I don't recall really watching TV in my own house. It's crazy, right? But then my dad decides to purchase a TV that was used. I think it was used. And I want to put on the screen for you like what these sort of old school TVs look like. So the one my parents had was probably more like in the 1960s, 1970s version I mean, back then, TV was furniture, right? It was not like, now they try to hide it on the wall. It's like a, it's like a picture on the wall. It's just above the fireplace. No one sees it. But now it's like, it was, back then it was a piece of furniture. And my dad had this big TV. It weighed like 700 pounds. And we put it in the living room, and we're going to turn on this TV in our, in our living room. And my dad turns the thing on, and something blew up. Like, I'm not kidding. Something shot out of the top of the television, made a hole, and hit the ceiling. And I was like, TVs are pretty cool. This is awesome. I like watching TV. And so that became like this dinosaur. We never fixed it. That, that became this dinosaur that we stored in the other end of our basement. And we never fixed it. We never, so my mom saw that as a sign from God. She was like, see, see, that's what happens, you know. So God killed our television. We're not meant to have one. 
So we stored it somewhere else. So it took like three more years for us to finally get another one, you know? And uh, so because we didn't have a TV, my cousin who lived down the road, he did. And he was like my TV informant. So I would say, hey, um, hey, what's, what's coming on television in the near future that I need to be aware of? And he's like, well, we got this movie, we got this movie, this movie. And so I would talk my parents and let me go going down the road to his house to watch the classics, you know, like Wizard of Oz and stuff that kids are allowed to see. That witch really freaked me out, by the way, when I was a kid. And then Superman was like one of the movies I remember. He's like, it's coming on this Friday. You've got to be at my house. And so we make this plan. We're going to go see the movie Superman in his house. And um, I didn't watch much TV as a kid at that point. So, like, this is this epic film. It was made in, like, 1978 where the graphics were incredible. And so we're going to watch Superman at my, my cousin's house. And uh, if you remember, if you ever watched the old school Superman movie, this is a picture of his, his father. This is a guy named Jor-El in the, the, the fable of Superman. And I think this is from the actual movie I'm talking about. And he's, so what planet is Superman from? What's the planet? Krypton. You know that. And so the plan is, somehow the planet's going to explode. Not sure why exactly. But to save their son's life, they decide to send him into space, which sounds safer than watching the planet explode and your son dying for sure. So they send him off in a space vessel and he crashes onto Earth in the rural town of what? Smallville, Kansas. So we have Smallville, Kansas, population 45,001. And we know who the one is, right? It's Superman, Clark Kent. So here's a little uh, video of him when he, in, when he, after just, just after he'd landed and his earthly parents find him. Let's watch this video. All these years, as happy as we've been, how I've prayed and prayed the good Lord see fit to give us a child. Honey, will you hand me that rag up there? You take things easy now, Jonathan. Remember what Doc Fry said about that heart of yours. <laughs> uh, the first thing we got to do when we get home is find out who that boy's proper family is. He hasn't got any. Not around here, anyway. Martha, are you thinking what I think you're thinking? We could say he's a child of my cousin in North Dakota. And just now often. Oh, Martha. Jonathan, he's only a baby. Martha, now you saw how we found him. Martha, Clark, Kent, are you listening to what I'm saying? So they right away start to see this is not, you know, I mean, of course, the way it happens is kind of special. Like, people don't just fall out of the sky and land in a field. But he's doing some special things, even in, in his youth. And we'll come back to this idea in a moment. But 
I want you to see, as, as he grows up, his dad teaches him things like charity, compassion, righteousness, nobility, and so he begins to use his power for good, and, but keeps his real identity concealed. And after high school, he moves to the big city, and he becomes a reporter for the Daily Planet. Now he has quick access to knowing where criminal activity is taking place. And so when he's Clark Kent, the reporter, what kind of person is he? He's clumsy, he's weak, he gets tired easily. He gets sick. He acts cowardly. But it's all an act, right? The moment something happens, um, he goes into a phone booth, and he sheds his earthly suit for a powerful suit. And he looks human, but he's not really human. He just seemed human. Many people in ancient history had the same idea about Jesus, that he really was just God in disguise. He wasn't really human, He didn't come fully as man in the way we think of today, but he, they often would downplay his humanity. We we think of Christ being deity right today, but they downplayed his humanity in the ancient world. They downplayed it. So the early church was um, quick to recognize Christ's deity, but they began to question his humanity. And I think like many of us, they wondered how he could be both God and man. It didn't make sense to the ancient mind. doesn't make sense to the modern mind how Jesus could be both God and man. Some said he wasn't truly human. He only seemed human. So here's the ancient heresy that we're going to talk about. It's called docetism, and it comes from the Greek word dokine, which means to seem, just to seem. Now this wasn't, they didn't think this because they thought, combining deity and humanity was just impossible. This all came from a popular belief in that culture back then called dualism. We're going to give you some history right now. Uh, called dualism. And what dualism, dualism was the belief that the material world was evil, but the spiritual world was good. Now you might think that someone believing the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good, was a churchy idea. It actually isn't the case. That was a pagan idea. That was not a churchy idea. The pagan world thought that the physical world was inherently evil and not good. And so this idea began to influence the church back then. It's why the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, He's addressing this kind of thinking in this passage. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's not writing just because, these words. He's writing to a very specific cultural situation. Docetism later gave rise to Gnosticism, where they believed that God, who was good and spiritual, could have no interaction with the material world. So John, in 1 John, is saying, no, Jesus really did come in the flesh. Like, he really did come literally and physically 
to be with us. He didn't just seem to be human. He really was human when he came here to earth to be with us. Now, I can see how some would conclude that the physical world is evil. We talked about, we've discussed sexuality and the service and the mainstream. We've, we've talked to you guys about how the church and even the pagan culture has thought throughout history that the physical world is inherently evil. We've talked about that with you. But it is, but it is not. That, that idea is, is at odds with Christianity when you look deeper at the Christian faith. When God created everything material, what did he say about it? He said, it is good. Everything he made, he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. When God created us, he gave us real bodies. And that wasn't some compromise in the cosmic world between good and evil. That was God's intent and his design to give us real physical bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, it refers to our resurrection bodies. That means, guess what? Whenever, at the end of time, whatever that looks like, when God raises up believers, that means you're going to have a real resurrection body. You're not just some spirit being floating around. There's a real physical nature to you in your resurrected state, just like there was for Jesus. And so this is, all of this is why some in the early church didn't believe that Jesus was fully man, that he only seemed to be man. So how do we commit the Superman heresy today? Let's ask that question. In the Gospels, we assume that Jesus battled temptation in like some Superman-like way. I know whenever we look at the miracles of Christ, it does seem like he's doing things like we saw in the clip, the Superman clip, right? Like he's just showing off his power. He's just saying, hey, look what I can do. Look how powerful I am. But I want to talk about how Jesus faced temptation. We think of Jesus facing temptation like Superman. Like he just put on his cape and he fought against Satan and against evil and just won the victory right there in the moment and that was it. And of course you and I look at that and go, well, I can't really do that. So how am I supposed to be Christ-like? I can't do what he did, so how can I do the, those kinds of things? And you can't do those kinds of things. But if you, if you look closely at the Gospels, we can find courage. Because Whenever Jesus dealt with temptation, do you recall when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? What did Jesus do in those moments? He did the things that you and I also have access to. He quoted scripture. He prayed. He fasted. This is how he dealt with temptation. The same way that you and I are to deal with temptation. He used the same tools that are available to you and I as he dealt with temptation in the wilderness. So we can't just look at him and, and, and downplay his humanity and act like, well, he was God and he was, and downplay his humanity. We cannot approach Jesus like that because in many ways he set the example for us that we are to live out our faith, especially battle against temptation in the same way that he did while he walked on the face of this earth. I think you and I can lapse into the Superman heresy without even knowing we're doing so. So I want to look at four things that the Bible says about Jesus. Number one, Jesus was predicted by the prophets. And I know most of you know this, 
but some of you may not know this. And I know we just finished a series addressing uh, questions that skeptics might have. But if you are a skeptic and you're in here this morning, I want to let you know that, that much of what we say we believe, that the New Testament says about Jesus, was predicted in the Old Testament. And I think we forget about that. And so if you are a skeptic, you have to at least wrestle with the reality. We know the Old Testament was written years and years before Christ and makes predictions about him that we, knew, that we know came to be true. So we do know this reality. One of the most important evidences for the Christian faith, I think, is that Jesus really fulfilled prophecy. He really did. More than 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And this goes against all of those who believe that God would never enter into human flesh. All those people that think God would never stoop so low and enter into the material world and enter into all that evil. God would never do such a thing. The name Emmanuel means God with us. That he really did come to be with us and to dwell with us. Around the same time, the prophet Micah predicted a great ruler would be born in Bethlehem. In, in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of, is from of old, from ancient days. The town of Bethlehem was not known for being a significant place. We might not even know the name Bethlehem were it not for Christ being born in that little humble city. That's where he was born. And he fulfilled many prophecies predicting that he would come. And we know this. So he fulfilled prophecies. Number two, he was born and he grew up like a normal human. And I'll put normal in quotation marks. <laughs> right? Now we know there's some special things about his birth, of course. But after that, we don't really hear much about him until he's 30. There's that one story about him being in the temple when he was around the age of 12. But there's this big gap from his birth all the way to the time he's 30 and starts his ministry. The Gospels all focus on his birth and then his ministry at the, around the age of 30. So about 100 years after the Gospels were written, there's this, these like false Gospels, they call them. These are fanciful, mythical stories about Jesus that people tried to make up about his childhood. And they, they sound a lot like what you saw in the Superman clip. Like him just showing off his power and doing miracles even as a kid. And these are, we would call these false gospels. They were fanciful stories told by humans because they wanted to sort of downplay his humanity and make it seem like he was doing all these kinds of tricks to show off his power in his childhood as well. One of those was called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And the church never saw these things as legitimate. But they're full of fantasy stories about Jesus as a kid. One of them I read recently talked about him making little clay birds and then breathing life into them. And that story made it into the Quran. There's actually stories about Jesus' childhood 
in the Quran that we would say we don't think those are legit and true. Other ones that would paint Jesus in a negative light in his childhood. At age one, there's a story in this infancy gospel of Thomas where at age one, he, Jesus curses a boy, causing his body to wither into a corpse. Another one says that he killed another child when someone bumped into him. But they're describing like bully Jesus as a kid. Another one describes the neighbors complain about Jesus, so he strikes them with blindness. I don't know if his like base was turned up too high, the neighbors were upset about him. I'm not even sure what was going on there, but you know. He strikes them with blindness. There's also some positive ones that it, re- that it talks about too. That one of his friends fell off of a roof and dies, and Jesus resurrects him. That he heals a man who chopped his foot with an axe. That he produced a feast from a single grain of wheat. That he's working with his dad one day, and he stretches a beam to make it longer so he can help his dad finish a job. Another one says that he heals his brother James from snake poison. So there's some positive ones and some negative ones, but we would see these as false fanciful, mythical stories about Jesus that are being put out there in these false gospels so that they can downplay his humanity and play up his deity, but do it in some false ways. So the church has never seen these things as legitimate. But these things were developed because we want a Superman Jesus. If you notice, though, in the gospels, whenever Jesus does a miracle... They always serve a theological purpose. Whenever Christ does a miracle in the Gospels, like, say, feeding the 5,000, he's not just doing a trick to be like, hey, guys, look what I can do. Bam. You know, that's not the point of the miracle. The point of the miracle is to make a theological point where later on, as he takes these little loaves of bread and the fish and feeds 5,000 people with them, later on he teaches what? Truth. He says, he says, I am the bread of life. And so as the bread's being given out physically to these people, later on he says, I am that bread of life. Like, I give myself broken to you. And that's a literal and physical reality. The broken body and the blood of Jesus being shed on our behalf and broken for us so that you can have me. And it's this theological point he's making when he does really all of his miracles. When he heals someone who's blind, it's meant to depict spiritual blindness, someone gaining spiritual sight and seeing who Jesus really is. So there's always a bigger point when he does these miracles. Point number three, Jesus demonstrated normal human limitations. When you open the Gospels, what do we see? We don't see Jesus flying around like Superman. We see Jesus tired, hungry, thirsty. In Matthew 8, he's preaching and he's healing people all day. And then he gets on a boat with the disciples. And what happens to Jesus? He falls asleep. He falls asleep. I mean, healing people is exhausting, y'all. Now, I can't relate to that, but I can relate to the teaching part. Like, whenever I do the main service three times, it is a whole nother level 
of exhaustion versus one time in here. Trust me. Because there is an emotion that you need when you're preaching to people that you feel coming out of you. And so Jesus is preaching to all these people all the time, and it's exhausting, and he gets tired. And so he's on this boat, and he falls asleep. And remember, the storm kicks up, and what happens? Jesus sleeps through. He is so exhausted that he sleeps through the storm. I don't sleep through storms. When I hear thunder, I usually wake up. But Jesus, being fully man, he is so exhausted, he sleeps right through the storm. So he showed normal human limitations. Then lastly, Jesus died. There isn't a more human thing to do than to die. Jesus died. It was physical. It was literal. He didn't just fake his death. It wasn't like the scene in The Princess Bride where he was like mostly dead. He's like all dead. He's completely dead. And there are, now you guys are going to start quoting the movie. Just, just hang on. Wait till we're done. Mowage. All right. So, so there, when, when someone was crucified back then, many who were crucified lasted much longer than Jesus on the cross. They'd have to break someone's leg so they would finally just suffocate and die. And that wasn't necessary for Jesus because he died before most people would die. His death, I think, shows his humanity. I think uh, Dagan did a great job talking about the resurrection two weeks ago or however long ago that was now. The resurrection shows his deity. His death shows his humanity. That he was just like us in his humanity in that regard. Now, here's why all this is important. So what's the big deal? Does Jesus really have to be human? Is that really important? Is that a big part of the story? I think it's a huge part of the story. Why can't Jesus just seem to be human? Why does he have to be? What's really at stake in all this? Well, I would say that the gospel's at stake. The gospel's really at stake in all this. The gospel only works if Jesus was fully man. I want to tell you some things that you already know and tell you some things that you may not know. In Genesis 1, we see that God creates Adam and Eve, and they were the high point of creation, were made in his image, and they're supposed to rule and have dominion over the earth. They're supposed to serve as God's representatives as they exercise dominion over the earth. He delegates authority to them, but in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. They seek to become like God. We talked about this in our problem of sin talk a few weeks ago, that it wasn't just about a piece of fruit. But in their sin, the first sin, this was a rebellion against God because they were seeking to become like God. That was the heart of the sin. God said, you can't do this one thing, and they chose to do so. And they were seeking to become like their creator. And this was a rebellion against God. So sin was a human problem that humans created, and it would require a human substitute to be sacrificed on our behalf and in our place. Todd Miles 
says it this way. He says, human sin had brought this calamity, and human death, the penalty, was right at the center of it. Sin is a human problem, and a human problem requires a human solution. I don't want you to lose the divine nature, of course, of Jesus coming in the flesh or coming to earth to die in our, as our substitute. But I want you to, what, what he's saying is a human, repro- a human problem of sin requires a human substitute. And this is why Jesus had to be human and had to be fully man. It's why it's important. So in Genesis 3.15, God says there's going to be a baby born who would rise up and crush the head of the serpent. Genesis uh, 3.15, that's talked about. But then all through the Old Testament, there is no human who can do that. No human makes it right throughout the entire Old Testament. They all fail, and they fail badly, and they all die. So God makes a plan. He chooses a man named Abraham. He chooses his family and makes his family into a nation, a great nation. And this nation called Israel was supposed to be a priestly nation. They're supposed to represent God to the world and be the go-between between the world and who God was. And they also failed in that endeavor as well. They didn't do so well with that. And so God sets up this sacrificial system, the life for life, to deal with sin. But even that system showed how it ultimately wasn't enough. I think you and I take for granted how um, just powerful of an image this sacrificial system was for a Jewish family. So imagine the Day of Atonement. Jewish families are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices for their sins. And maybe there's an animal that the kids and, and the parents have raised together, and they're, they're bringing this, this animal to on this journey. And you can imagine that the conversations that I might create between a father and mother and their kids, and how they're having to explain to their kids why we have to sacrifice this animal on our behalf. And why is it that this animal needs to spill its blood because of our sin? And just the powerful, earthy, raw, emotional image that would create in that family as they made that pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem. It'd be a a, a horrific thing to have to do. I know we're so removed from that that we don't think about how awful that would have to be. But it was what's being communicated to these families in, in Israel is... This lamb is offered as a so. What's happening to the lamb or to the goat is what should be happening to you. And that would be a powerful thing to be thinking about as you're doing these sacrifices. But even then, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Because a lamb is not human. It's inferior to human, to being a human. It was man who sinned, and so it would need to be a man who paid the price for our sins. And this, of course, is where Jesus comes in. He's the final sacrifice. He could only take our place because he was one of us, because he was fully man. But he wasn't merely one of us. We also know that he had to be God, and that's also equally important. And we'll discuss that next week. But I want you to understand one thing before we go to discussion. If you've ever had a hard time 
relating to the idea that God understands you or gets you or knows what it's like to be in your shoes, you must know this one thing, that Jesus was fully man. That he has experienced everything that you have experienced. All the temptations, all the frustrations, all of the human limitations, he's experienced every single one of them. So if you don't know Christ, and you're having a hard time understanding how this God could come in the flesh and dwell with mankind and die on our behalf and resurrect again, if you can't get that, at least know this this morning, that he knows just what it's like to be you and in your shoes. And you begin to understand that he can empathize with where you are today. My hope is that you would put your faith and trust in him. There is no other religion that puts forth the idea that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Christianity is the only one that even claims such a thing. And so my hope is that you'd put your faith and trust in that God this morning if you don't know him. And put your faith and trust that he truly was God, but he's also fully man as well. Go ahead and finish with your discussion questions at your table.